When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a deep dive into the origins, values, and many, many adaptations of The Adventures of Pinocchio, including how Guillermo del Toro's upcoming dark stop-motion animation could be the truest yet to the original. Plus, the mystery of 8,000 Iron Age frog skeletons found in a mass burial site in England. And it's Fat Bear Summer at Katmai National Park. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. This is apparently the year of Pinocchio. Disney recently put out a trailer for the upcoming live-action adaptation starring Tom Hanks as Geppetto that kind of looks like a shot-for-shot remake of their original 1940 cartoon. Lionsgate put out a digitally animated version earlier this year with Pinocchio inexplicably voiced by Polly Shore that was so bad and so heavily memed, some people think it was purposefully bad just so people would hate watch it. There are also rumors that Ron Howard and Robert Downey Jr. have teamed up for yet another adaptation in the near future, and most intriguing of all, Guillermo del Toro has a dark stop-motion version coming to Netflix later this year year. And the Del Toro one sees Pinocchio, who looks a bit like Groot with spindly legs, learning how to be himself in the face of oppressive puppet master-like regimes, as opposed to learning how to be a good little obedient boy like in the Disney cartoon. Del Toro told Vanity Fair, quote, Many times the fable has seemed to me in favor of obedience and domestication of the soul. Blind obedience is not a virtue. The virtue Pinocchio has is to disobey. At a time when everybody else behaves as a puppet, he doesn't. Those are the interesting things for me. I want to tell it my way and in the way I understand the world. End quote. Leaning into that puppetry of the populace, the Del Toro version will have Pinocchio recruited into an Italian fascist youth organization because the military officials see a lot of potential in a wooden soldier who can't be killed. Yeah, pretty dark. But what do you expect from the man who brought us Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy? Plus, from what Del Toro has teased thus far, his adaptation might be far closer to the original Pinocchio stories than Disney's version ever was. The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi, born Carlo Lorenzini, but taking the name of his hometown Collodi as his pen name, is the second most frequently translated work of fiction in the world, after Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's Le Petit Prince. Quoting The New Yorker, For many audiences worldwide, Pinocchio is the spirit of disobedience. No sooner is he born than he establishes his independence from his creator Geppetto. 
Not long after that, he also, in a sense, parts ways with Collodi, whose original conception was very different from the finished book. Since then, Pinocchio has continually refused to be tied down, roaming freely across the world's visual culture, always different, but always recognizably himself. End quote. One reason it makes sense that we've gotten so many different adaptations that spin off in so many different tonal directions and plot paths is because the source material itself is kind of all over the place. Pinocchio began as a serialized novel, one Collodi was asked to write for the newly established Giornal per i Bambini, or Newspaper for Children, in 1881. Collodi, the eldest son of servants whose employer gave Collodi the unlikely opportunity of an education, got involved in revolutionary politics and journalistic-esque writing as an adult. Despite never marrying or having kids, and perhaps not even liking kids very much, he was passionate about his country, about its people unifying and having their own agency. So contributing to a newspaper that was meant to encourage literacy and cultural knowledge in kids was right up his alley. Pinocchio, originally published as La Storia di un Burattino, or The Story of a Puppet, was the newspaper's most popular serial, and Collodi kept it up for 15 chapters before killing Pinocchio off towards the end of 1881. That rather sinister conclusion, however, would not end up being the real ending. The serialized story returned a few months later, with Pinocchio refusing to die and 21 more chapters ultimately being added. You know, we scoff at efforts of fans these days who campaign relentlessly to get more seasons of canceled TV shows or extended cuts of movies, but such enthusiasm and organizing from fans is really nothing new. The most famous early example occurred just a decade after Pinocchio's original serial publication, that of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. He tried to end the series by killing off both his protagonist and his chief villain in 1893, but after 10 years of protest and pressure from fans, Conan Doyle brought the hero back to life with a fresh slate of new stories. L. Frank Baum, too, tried to end the Wizard of Oz stories after the sixth novel, The Emerald City of Oz, by having Glinda the Good Witch cast a protective spell over Oz that made it invisible and unreachable to all outsiders. But three years later, due to both fan and financial pressure, he brought the series back for seven more books. Clody was in a more similar boat to Baum. It's thought that he needed money in addition to having an enthusiastic fan base who wanted more. So part two of Pinocchio came out a few months after Pinocchio's original grim death. The following year, all of the installments were published together as one cohesive book, The Adventures of Pinocchio. And perhaps in part to its originally serialized nature, there are a lot of inconsistencies in the original work. The New Yorker mentions how some characters change ages or species without explanation, how others appear only once and are never heard from again, how Pinocchio's motivations get kind of retconned as the story reaches its ultimate ending, the transformation of Pinocchio into a real boy, something he's said to have desired all along, but which apparently never gets mentioned in until chapter 25. 
And while this in part reflects the nature of serialization, you know, just coming up with a new adventure for each installment, according to Nicholas J. Perella, the translator of one of the better bilingual editions of the book, Collodi once told a friend that he didn't even remember writing that ending to the book, one which befuddles a lot of people because it shows such a seemingly out-of-character transformation of Pinocchio, not just wooden puppet to real boy, but from a mischievous spirit into a one-note obedient shadow of himself. Collodi allegedly told a friend that he might have been drunk when he wrote it, which apparently adds up with Collodi's reputation. Per The New Yorker, Collodi was a gambler, a womanizer, an enthusiastic drinker, super lazy, and hated revising his writing. He also knew he was writing for kids, so who cared about inconsistencies? But within those inconsistencies, some strong themes nonetheless emerged, or have been lionized as canon over the years, whether they were in the original book or not. For example, Disney's major contribution of the nose that grows longer with each lie was not exactly in the original book. Pinocchio's nose does grow twice, but it's not in response to his many lies. And while a moralizing cricket does appear in the original story, Pinocchio kills him with a mallet before listening to his advice, though the cricket does make an appearance again as a ghost in part two. One of the more egregious changes in the Disney cartoon is the erasure of the Italian setting and culture. Quoting the introduction to a new translation by John Hooper and Anna Krasina that appeared in Literary Hub last fall, the gap between the way Carlo Collodi's The Adventures of Pinocchio is perceived in the land of its origin and the view taken of it by speakers of English is vast. In Italy, critics regard it as a masterpiece, one of the greatest works in the literary canon, a book that has played a significant role in the development of the Italian language, one rich in subtle allusions and artful contrivances, comparable to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or Gulliver's Travels. Italian scholars have written extensive treaties on the layers of cultural, social, political, and even religious significance to be found in it. Many English speakers, by contrast, are more likely to have had their perceptions of the story colored by Walt Disney's 1940 cartoon movie version, Pinocchio. Seldom has a work of literature been so overshadowed by its celluloid adaptation. What is unquestionably true is that Pinocchio is one of those rare fictional characters in whom an entire people seem to be able to make out their reflection. The only similar literary creations who spring to mind are Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, personifications of the twin souls of Spain, absurdly idealistic and earthly pragmatic. But what Carlo Collodi achieved was to bring together in a single character more than half a dozen of the contrasting traits that Italians, whether proudly or reluctantly, associate with themselves and their compatriots. For Gianluigi Corinto, Pinocchio is generous, good-hearted, open, combative, bratish, but a good son who risks his life to save his father, mendacious yet likable, the most powerful ambassador for Italianness. End quote. The Disney cartoon version, however, moves away from Italy, and instead sets the story in some vaguely Swiss town. Given how central to Italian culture the story had been for decades, and central Italian culture is to the original story, this feels like some kind of whitewashing. But Hooper and Krasina point out that the cartoon premiered the same year that Mussolini declared war on Britain and France. Italian fascism was spreading across Europe. For American Walt Disney, leaning too much into Italian culture for a feature-length cartoon would not have been a savvy PR move. 
which all makes Del Toro's return not just to Italy, but to the threat of fascism during that same period the Disney cartoon was debuting, all the more powerful. Despite its dark undertones, in Del Toro's version, Pinocchio is literally cut from the tree that grew over the gravesite of Geppetto's dead son, Del Toro insists that it is as much a kid-friendly affair as the original stories were, telling Vanity Fair, quote, These are times that demand from kids a complexity that is tremendous, far more daunting, I think, than when I was a child. Kids need answers and reassurances. For me, this is for both children and adults that talk to each other. It tackles very deep ideas about what makes us human, end quote. And I love that stipulation. You know, I'm sometimes asked by parents whether certain books or movies are appropriate for kids at various ages. And often, the answer is simply that it can be if you're willing to have complex and nuanced conversations with your kid. That's something Collodi was trying to infuse into the youth of Italy at the time, instructions on the values of life, on being human, and something that Del Toro says is so often missing in childhood. He said, comparing the story of Pinocchio to that of Frankenstein's monster, quote, They're both about a child that is thrown into the world. They're both created by a father who then expects them to figure out what's good, what's bad, the ethics, the morals, love, life, and essentials on their own. I think that was, for me, childhood. You had to figure it out with your very limited experience. End quote. And that, I think, is the heart of Pinocchio. It's a bit of a Wizard of Oz situation, wishing so badly for someone to make you into a real boy in this case, but finding out that you were a real boy all along, and you just had to learn how to see it for yourself, learn how to be yourself in an endlessly confusing and often oppressive world. And if anyone can pull off the heart of that message in a film that is also visually striking and technically groundbreaking, I think it's probably Guillermo del Toro. Even if you feel completely oversaturated by Pinocchio this year, his stop-motion version hitting Netflix in December will probably be one to watch. Archaeologists in Cambridge, England are a bit stumped after finding over 8,000 frog bones in a ditch next to an Iron Age settlement they'd been excavating. Finding a few frog bones is not unusual, but this many altogether is a bit bizarre. Quoting The Guardian, As this is prehistory, finding an explanation is difficult. Although ancient civilizations, including the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Greeks, and Romans, all saw the frog as a symbol of fertility, among other associations. It's unlikely that these amphibians had been eaten by the people living at the settlement. The archaeologists say that while there is evidence of amphibian consumption in Britain dating to the Stone Age, these bones have no cuts or burn marks. If the frogs had been boiled, however, this may not have left traces. Evidence of charred grain found near the site suggests that its inhabitants were processing crops that would attract pests such as beetles and aphids, which frogs are known to eat. So perhaps the frogs were drawn to the area by the promise of food, the archaeologists suggest." End quote. And once drawn to the area, perhaps some kind of mass tragedy befell them. They may have gotten trapped altogether in that ditch, or maybe a weather event killed them. Even though frogs usually hide in the mud to hibernate during harsh winters, an unexpected and severe cold snap or storm could have taken them by surprise. Or perhaps a disease tore through their ranks. 
Analyses of all findings from the site are still ongoing, so we don't have any answers yet. The site was being excavated to make way for highway improvements, and in addition to the 8,000 frog bones, archaeologists also uncovered human remains and many artifacts over the course of 40 excavations from 2016 to 2018. The frogs, though, were certainly the most remarkable find, and I am going to start spreading the rumor now that when you drive over the highway on that site in the future, if you listen closely, you can still hear the frogs croaking. The time has come once again. The Fat Bear live camera feeds at Katmai National Park and Preserve in Alaska have officially turned back on for the season. Viewers at explore.org can watch the bears 24-7 as they begin their long preparations for hibernation and unknowingly compete to be crowned the fattest bear in the Fat Bear Week contest in October. Fat Bear Week has been running every year since 2014 and encourages the public to learn more about the bears and the national park where they live. The more pounds a bear packs on over the summer, mostly by munching on 4,500-calorie salmon they catch in the Brooks River, the better equipped they'll be to survive the long Alaskan winter. All of the bears are numbered, some of them have names, and many that reappear year after year have backstories attached to them that avid fans are familiar with, so once that bracket hits in October, social media usually heats up with commentary. And though the bears won't be too active until July, some have already started making their appearances, quoting Mashable. The cameras already spotted a trio of well-known bears, one of which is building quite a legend at Katmai. It's the female bear Grazer, or Bear 128, and her two grown-up cubs. Grazer is an extremely dominant bear who vies for the best fishing spots against some of the river's biggest and boldest male bears, like the behemoth Bear 747. She intimidates and sometimes even attacks bears that approach or threaten her cubs. This makes her one of the most dominant bears on the river, Naomi Boak, the media ranger at Katmai National Park and Preserve, told Mashable in 2021. End quote. Watching the live feeds can be a nice, relaxing activity, and following the evolving narratives of all of the bears is pretty fun, too. So if you are new to the Katmai Bear Cams, I recommend checking them out at explore.org. Link in the show notes. One more Pinocchio thing that I couldn't fit into that exceptionally long first segment. Did you know that in the spirit of the story's original serialization, back in the 60s, Rankin Bass put out a 130-episode TV show called The New Adventures of Pinocchio? It's in the same stop-motion style and cozy tone as their more popular Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus is Coming to Town movies, and it modernizes many of the characters, in part to keep it distinct from the Disney cartoon. For example, the nefarious cat and fox sport sunglasses and talk about going to Hollywood. There are a few clips you can watch on YouTube if you're curious, although the quality from them is not too great. And of course, if this episode has gotten you in a Pinocchio mood, the best adaptations that almost certainly do not stand the test of time are the 1999 Jonathan Taylor Thomas version and the 2000 Drew Carey one. 
two of about half a dozen Pinocchio adaptations from around the turn of the century. And I guess every few years we just get like every studio deciding it's time to do Pinocchio again. And here we are once more. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.